since we've started providing that direct access, we've seen our products related to fiber grow consistently by 20% annually for the last seven years without really marketing, just from improving the customer service. Welcome to episode 206 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In this episode, Chris introduces us to Bob Farmer, Information Systems Director from the city of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Bob shares how the municipal network has benefited the community and how it's evolved over the years. He also describes how they've dealt with specific challenges to improve services to the community and discusses a few of the problems Glenwood Springs contends with today. Now let's listen to Chris and Information Systems Director Bob Farmer discuss potential solutions and lessons learned in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Bob Farmer, the Information Systems Director for Glenwood Springs in Colorado. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, I was excited to to book you after we had such a fun panel last week in Mountain Connect. Um, we were on with uh, several other folks from Colorado that are doing great things. And, and I'm a little bit ashamed that for all the years that you guys have been operating, uh, we haven't spoken with you. So uh, we'll rectify that today. Um, let's start with just a little description of what Glenwood Springs is like. Uh, it's pretty nice, I rem- if I remember correctly, from the last time I drove through. I think it's really nice. Every time I go on vacation, I come back, I, I, no matter where I've gone, I feel happy to be home because it's so beautiful and it's such a great place to live. We're located in the heart of the Rocky Mountains, uh, 45 minutes north of Aspen and an hour uh, to the west of Vail. So we're kind of right in the middle. Um, our population is about 10,000 people. Uh, we can't really build out because we have mountains all around us. We can only kind of build up at this point. And our daytime population actually swells to about 30,000 because we're a local hub for retail, uh, for banking, and for um, we have a large population of lawyers too, probably um, too much so. <laughs> I was going to say there's got to be a joke there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't come up with a good one. But our probably, probably our primary industry, though, is tourism. And examples of that is we were voted the most fun small town in 2012. Uh, I think it was by Rand McNally. We have the world's largest outdoor hot springs. We have another hot springs that just opened that complements the, the world's largest outdoor hot springs. We have an adventure park uh, that takes you on a tram up the hill. There's an uh, alpine slide. There's a roller coaster. And then there's this giant swing that kind of throws you off the cliff and then swings you back in. Um, so it's kind of a great place to bring the family and definitely a great place to live. Great. And for a while now, you've been working on improving the internet access locally. Uh, Why don't you just start at the beginning? Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Glenwood Springs started electricity way, way back. So we've had electricity around the same time that New York City had electricity. And we were kind of one of the first towns in Colorado to, to have electricity. And so that kind of um, shows that we're a little bit progressive in that, in that sense. You know, fast forward to 1999, 2000, we had dial-up service. We didn't have much of anything else. We had some wireless providers providing like 128 kilobits, uh, maybe 256 kilobit if you were lucky. We had, um, Cent- it wasn't CenturyLink, I think it was Quest at the time, or whatever Quest was before that. <laughs> right. We're not going to get all the way back into that. It takes too long to try and recount the ancestors. <laughs> Right. And we had actually gone to them at one point and asked, 
what are you going to do to upgrade our, our community? And, and they basically tell us, we have no plans on the horizon for your town. Um, so a citizens group, I think it was the Two Rivers Telecommunications Group, formed and started talking about improving broadband throughout our, our valley. And it caught hold in Glenwood Springs. And in 2000, 2001, they started working on a business plan. Um, and we started doing fiber in 2002, fiber and, and wireless. The, the original plan was only for fiber, so fiber, phone, and television. And we had a, a bunch of wireless internet service providers and some other local businesses that said, well, government shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing this. And at the end of the day, our, our business plan changed to providing a, a fiber backbone with a wireless overlay. Not necessarily the most ideal network or way to spend your money on if your ultimate goal is to improve connectivity, because at that point we were directly competing with the existing wireless providers, and, and many of them became resellers on our network. We kind of treated our fiber network like a utility. Um, our anchor tenants would sign on, we would serve them directly, but they'd have a like a $5,000 install fee. And, and at first they were even trying to get businesses to pay $5,000 to have them come onto our network when they could go to CenturyLink or Comcast and buy a much slower service, but, but get it basically for free. That was if you were connecting directly with the fiber. So you basically would do fiber to like the anchor institutions and the businesses, uh, but residents would more likely get the wireless service, right? That's correct. So the fiber at that time was only anchor institutions and um, businesses. And then you were, and then the cost dropped after that. You said it was 5000 first and then it came down a bit? Yeah. So uh, after I started, um, or right as I started, it, it dropped down to 900 bucks which I thought was still too high. So I lobbied it uh, and lobbied and lobbied. I was like, we're in a competitive industry. We can't treat this like a utility. And we need to make take away that barrier to get people onto the network if you want to have more revenue and, and to grow that network. So ultimately, it dropped down to $50, and then I had the, was given the right to waive that fee. Um, so for many years, we didn't install anything. And so when you say um, treat it like a utility, I'm I, I always just assume that because Glenwood Springs has a municipal electric utility that you probably had your internet service through the through them. Originally, that's that's actually correct, and technically, it's it's still correct. So broadband is a functional department of the electric utility, so a sub department. It's interesting because our sales support and technical operations are done by the broadband department, that sub department, uh, under my guidance in information systems. So I don't, I'm not an electric at all. I don't. Res- report to the public works director. Uh, but broadband is kind of technically under his oversight a little bit and, and mostly under mine. There are some joint responsibilities where we do the sales and support, and then electric has to do our outside plant work. And you know, after many years, it, it gets to the point where we haven't really done a whole lot in the last 10 years since it was originally built. Our growth has been pretty small, our budget's small, no real capital has been infused in it. And our electric department's kind of to the point where they're they're tired of doing that type of work. They didn't want to do fiber work. They don't want to be fiber splicers. Um, I think that's more of an organizational issue from from our standpoint, issues that we have. Uh, but at this point, we only have one trained fiber splicer, and it's hard to get them to do our outside plant work. So our growth is restricted because of that. I think that's a really important lesson for places that are looking at how they're structuring uh, these kinds of investments because, you know, you have kind of this bifurcated leadership. Um, you know, it's 
it, this is such an important job, and and it's something that, as you noted, it's it's more market oriented, right? I mean, I think none of us would say it's a properly functioning market, but it certainly has market aspects in terms of people having at least a limited choice. And if you try to force an electric utility to do something it doesn't want to do, you know, odds are it's true for anyone. You know, if you're trying, if you're forced to do something you don't want to do, odds are you're not going to put your best effort forward. Unfortunately. You're completely right. And that's where we're at today. And we struggle because of that. My lesson learned from this, if I were structuring it again, I would make broadband its own separate department with its own splicer outside plant guys, et cetera. And furthermore, I, I frankly would want to get it outside of city government if I could get it into its own broadband authority or something to that effect. Um, that way you're not dealing with the other organizational issues that cities go through, changes in leadership, inability to hire or unwillingness to hire people in one department because you're not really hiring citywide, for example. Salary comparisons, you start comparing your salary for your people in broadband to other municipalities, and there's really not much to compare to. I think you will soon have an example of that in southwest Colorado, where, uh, as we discussed in the conference, Cortez is looking at forming an independent authority um, and it will have its own financing mechanism. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen where that's happened elsewhere in Virginia with uh, BVU, the Bristol Virginia Utilities, uh, they formed an authority. And unfortunately, I think that's led them to be a little less connected to the population. They seem a little less accountable to the public. Um, so I feel like, you know, it's kind of a trade off. There's no perfect situation. Um, right. But but I certainly I think we've seen that that problem in a number of places where um, either being too connected to the you know, rigid procurement policies for local government uh, or being at risk from day to day politics. You don't want a mayor to just sweep in and make a sudden decision. This is a this is a long term infrastructure, right? You need to have some stability in decision making. Yeah. And you also have to have your leaders interested in it. And that's one of the concepts I thought might work in an authority. You know, if you had representatives from your communities as your board of directors that are interested in broadband versus a city council that might not be. I think part of us not doing very much for a number of years is the city has other infrastructure issues and other projects going on and we're not we're not that priority anymore. Right. And one of the things that we found is that, of course, you know, what might work really well for Glenwood Springs might not work for others and vice versa. Uh, but I want to I want to jump into one of the things that I found really interesting, which was the open access wireless um, and some of the lessons that you learned uh, over the many years of, of working with that model. Um, tell us what happened after you got a number of those wireless providers on the network. At one point prior to me, we had seven service providers providing wireless service to residents in our town. But when we had about 500 to 550 wireless subscribers divided by seven companies trying to make money off of these subscribers. You know, there's some economies of scale to be gained when you have a large customer base. And when you don't have that large customer base, it's hard to have seven, seven um, players in that market. So what we started to see is these companies would merge with other other resellers on our network, other providers on our network, or they would be bought up by regional wireless ISPs. Th- that led into kind of a multitude of problems. One is the regional ISPs, open access wasn't really their focus or their model, and they didn't really want to sell fiber. So our fiber growth started to become limited. The other companies that were still surviving that didn't merge didn't necessarily have great resources. Um, one of the companies doesn't have a sales staff. Uh, hasn't for about seven years, so they're very slow at pulling on new customers. Um, 
We also kind of got into this game of if there was a service issue, if the customer was having a service issue, we would hear about it from the customer, but we would never hear about it from the service provider. And if it was an issue that we needed to fix, it's frustrating to both us and the customer that the service provider isn't taking them seriously. And we we actually still have a reseller on our network. and, And just yesterday, we had a customer cancel and we called the customer to schedule a time to pick up our equipment on the fiber network. And they said, the service is poor. Every time we try to contact the reseller, it takes them two to three days to get back to us. And for me, that's an example of how open access has failed. I think it can work. Um, I think it will take a lot of effort. And I think you have to remember why you're doing open access. You're doing it to, to provide some competition, not necessarily uh, completely open to anybody, but you're really trying to better serve the customer. And I think there's responsibilities for the municipality and for the service provider um, that need to be maintained throughout the relationship uh, of serving that customer. So what have you, what's the response been then with uh, not being able to count on the, the open access providers? Have you taken more operations in house then? Yeah. So we, we effectively started um, providing service in 2008 in, in Colorado. We had uh, Senate bill 152 as our barrier. Although we were grandfathered in, we went out for election in 2008 and it passed. Um, so we saw that as the citizens wanting or allowing us to provide direct access. Uh, since we've started providing that direct access, we've seen our fiber, our fiber products, so products related to fiber, business internet, and enterprise internet, grow consistently by 20% annually for the last seven years without really marketing, just from improving the customer service and providing what you're promising. Um, and you know, maintaining relationships, I think, is most important. Well, let's let's so let's talk about the relationships then. What is the solution for communities that would like to do open access? Um, you know, let's start with a with a with a basic question, which is: Is your population just too small? Do you think? Do you need to combine with others, or could you make it work in a, in a community of ten thousand? I, I don't think you can make it work well in a community of ten thousand. I mean, if you had ten thousand residents, about six thousand homes, and you had um, two providers and you had 100% coverage with no competition, that'd be 3,000 each, maybe you can make that work. But when you throw in having a Comcast, a CenturyLink, and six or five or four other wireless providers, in addition to you trying to provide open access, uh, there's just not enough customers. I think open access is really should be a regional approach. I think to best serve our communities, once we get through the initial efforts of building out our networks, I think a, a regional broadband authority or a regional efforts uh, at providing open access could make it more beneficial where you have a internet service provider that can service um, 10 communities instead of just ours. Then you can have, start having some economies of scale to make it affordable. Well, I want to I wanna change subjects to something that's more hopeful. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really good to get an eyes wide open approach to um, how challenging the open access model can be in a number of communities. Um, but I, what I'd really like to do is to talk a little bit more about over the years you've been there, um, you know, what, what's happened that's made you think this is all worth it, you know, that, that I'm really glad that we've been putting our effort into this. So really what, what makes it worth it to me is the fact that we do see progress, even though it's slow. Um, you know, for example, we, we serve our school district with one gig internet in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. We have gigabit connections between all their schools in Glenwood. 
they don't have that in their upper valley schools um, in Carbondale or Basalt and our neighboring communities. They don't have that that high of speeds connecting their schools together. Colorado is one of those places where, you know, I mean, it's not just a matter of not having a gig. There's school districts that are struggling on like T1s and they're paying, you know, like a hundred bucks a meg for internet service. Uh, you know, I think there's uh, it's remarkable how some, some districts in Colorado really have it hard. And uh, to be one of the ones that's doing well, that's got to be, you know, good. It makes you feel good. Yeah. And, you know, the other part of that is the more bandwidth we buy, the lower our cost gets and we pass that savings on to the school. So our school is paying less than 350 per meg for bandwidth, which I think is incredible since our cost is right, right over three. Uh, and we also pay for a redundant connection. Right, especially in that location. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of like in rural Minnesota. It's it's remote, but it's not hard to get fiber there. You're talking about the Rockies. <laughs> it's pretty difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's it's expensive, you know, uh, trenching, uh, getting conduit, getting fiber up here. Um, the state has done a lot recently with broadband, but the vision really wasn't great necessarily in the past. So all that fiber that uh, has been laid for CDOT and whatnot hasn't been used to benefit the communities with low-cost bandwidth or low-cost transport. Um, so it is really costly to get middle mile into the mountains, and we're lucky, I guess, because of where we're positioned. So what else is, uh, what else is inspiring aside from the schools? We have a, a small regional technology company. They, they provide managed services uh, to resort areas, and they have an office in Glenwood Springs, and they have an office here specifically because we have the type of connectivity that we do. To me, that's jobs that are brought into our community, people that we interact with, people that we see at the supermarket that can now stay here. Also, it's it's really just a little bit of effort to get our community better connected and, and trying to make a better future. I, I think my wife's a third generation native to Glenwood Springs, and our son is going to grow up, and at some point he's going to have to make that choice. Do I stay? Can I live in Glenwood Springs or a surrounding community, or do I have to move somewhere else? And I'm hoping that bandwidth is not the criteria for that decision, that he has plenty of opportunities because connectivity is widely available. Yes, that's such a common sentiment across um, across these efforts, I think, is uh, you know that, that feeling of parents and just making sure the younger generation can stay rooted locally. Well, I want to, as we're running out of time, I would like to just um, ask you um, briefly uh, what you look for in terms of if you were creating this project from scratch, um, you know, a common question that we get is, you know, it's hard to find technical people or, um, you know, a city's, um, we're not sure who we would hire to work on this. Um, you know, how, how would you advise a community that's trying to figure out how to staff up to build a community network? Expanding on that question and, and talking about what it takes to start, I don't necessarily think you need the most technical person to, to do so. I think you need somebody that's really dedicated uh, to that to that platform, but expanding that out to who do you want to have staff, no matter what their position is, you want you want to look at those intangibles. Are they kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit? Do they want to get the job done? Are they willing to work until it's done and do what it takes to do the job? You know, are they loyal to the organization? Uh, are they quick learners? Can they learn about different technologies quickly or different deployment methods? Getting that person to run your organization, you also want somebody that uh, that's good politically, that can make relationships with key 
people to identify who your champions are going to be. From a technical skill set, that's a little bit less important. That can be learned, especially with the right person. Right. It actually reminds me of a problem that the Geek Squad had to wrestle with, which was to engage in a little bit of stereotyping. Do you take very technical people and try to teach them customer service skills, or do you take people who are good at customer service and teach them technical skills? And, uh, you know, it sounds to me like you're saying, and this uh, this is blatantly um, my experience as well, is that you find people who are passionate about solving this problem and, and about connectivity, and then you figure out how to get them the education that they might need on these technical matters. You're exactly right. If you have somebody that's passionate about what they're doing, they're going to be able to learn it because they're they're going to want to learn it. If you find somebody that already has the knowledge technically and they're not very good at the customer side or the relationship side, that's harder to teach. That takes a lot more time, I think, if it can be taught at all. Right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us a little bit more about the network. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you next year at Mountain Connect again. Uh, Yeah, thank you for having me. I I think what you do is great, and uh, I enjoy our panels every year, and hopefully we can do it again next year. That was Chris with Bob Farmer, Information Systems Director of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, reviewing lessons learned from the community's experience operating its own municipal network. You can watch Periscope video of the Mountain Connect presentation from Bob and the other panelists. Just check out the at Mountain Connect handle on Twitter and look for the presentation on public sector broadband. Remember, you can read the transcript for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts at mininetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at mininetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Forget the Whale for their song, I Know Where You've Been, licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks again for listening to episode 206 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.